Hey everyone, Raghav here, and before we get into this brand new episode, we do have a very urgent announcement to make, and that is for those of you who follow us on social media, you know that we primarily use Instagram for all of our content and are very active over there. Well, unfortunately, we've had to get a new Instagram account because, well, we got locked out of our previous one for an unknown reason, and Instagram has no support, so we can't get it back. So now we're at a new account, and that is at PreventPod instead of at PreventPodcast. The new account is P-R-E. V-E-N-T-P-O-D. For the details on what happened, make sure to go to that new account and uh, check out the story highlights because that's where we explain kind of the situation. And on that account, just as a heads up, we will be posting our new content, which you guys are looking forward to hopefully, but we will also be posting um, our older content from season one just to catch up to where our previous page was. We want to thank you guys for the continued support and hope to grow our page back to where it was and beyond and continue spreading the message of preventive medicine. And now with that announcement out of the way, let's get back to this episode. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. The Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. Hey everyone, we hope your day is going great. One of the most apparent aspects of preventive medicine is the prevention of heart disease, as it is our number one killer here in the United States. Well, today at the podcast here, we finally sit down and chat with a cardiologist, namely Dr. Ali Haider, also known as Your Heart Doc on Instagram. Dr. Haider is a bundle of energy and he absolutely loves educating, as you'll find out throughout this episode, and if you follow him on Instagram, you already know that. And in this episode, we talk about a myriad of topics. This is a really energetic and upbeat episode, so sit back and let's get started straight into it. All right. Today we welcome uh, Dr. Ali Hader, also known as Your Heart Doc to the podcast. And we are looking forward to an incredible podcast. He is an interventional cardiologist. So we're talking all about the heart and a lot more with that. So um, with that, I guess the first question is tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got into the field of cardiology. Sure. So um, thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, I appreciate that. And um, as you say, I'm an interventional cardiologist. I you know, my, my route to cardiology um, is probably largely attributed to the fact that my father was a cardiologist, you know, sort of classic Daisy Brown guy situation, you know, following in the Bible's footsteps. Um, but, you know, that being said, he was a cardiologist and, you know, I had some exposure to it early on. I honestly, even when I went to college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't know I was going to be a doctor. There was no like you know, from medical, middle school, high school, I was hundred percent physician situation. It wasn't really like that. I kind of kept an open mind, you know, obviously my, my, my parents were luckily kind of letting me grow into what I wanted to do. So, um, then as the sort of the genetics probably kicked in, I, I kind of, you know, um, went towards the science and went towards medicine. I found that that was really what I liked. And when I decided I want to go into medical school and medicine, you know, even then I wasn't really sure exactly what I wanted to do. I, I went through various, you know, my, my initial things was I wanted to do ENT surgery was one of the things I wanted to do. Then it was interventional radiology. 
And then it kind of evolved to interventional cardiology. I knew I wanted to do something procedural. I did not want to do surgery. I wanted something that has a lot of innovation involved, but I wanted also the medicine aspect. I like, I really like internal medicine because a lot of thinking involved. There's a lot of diagnostic sort of um, situation involved. Um, and it really encompasses a lot of the, you know, a lot of the stuff you learn in medical school and a lot of the skills and the knowledge of all organ systems. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be the smart guy. And then, you know, interventional cardiology, and cardiology sort of was, you know, kind of encompassed a lot of things I wanted to do. And, you know, uh, perhaps by osmosis, um, obviously my, 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 my dad was involved in that obviously contributed to what I wanted to do and then uh, led me towards internal medicine and then to cardiology, ultimately interventional cardiology. I, I actually love what I do. It's a great balance because as an interventional cardiologist, I'm also a cardiologist and I'm also an internal medicine, you know, so I, I get to you can kind of curate it to how you want it. There are some interventional cardiologists that basically just do procedures. They're in the lab, cath lab, they're doing stents and procedures, you know, four or five days a week. Um, what I was able to do is kind of balance that. So I love doing procedures. Um, as you know, you follow my Instagram, I, I do uh, half my time doing procedures, but the other half of the time I actually do general cardiology. I see patients in the office. I see consultations. I read, you know, um, like echocardiograms. And I, 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 like the fact that I can be a fully balanced, you know, from, you know, soup to nuts sort of cardiologist. It makes me really understand um, my patients better, their pathophysiology better. Um, I like to be able to follow my patients. A lot of intervention cardiologists are just proceduralists. They do like surgeons, they do the procedure and then that's it. You know, I see my, my, my folks who had a VFRS STEMI five years later and I'm seeing them in the office and I, I, I enjoy that connection with that human connection I get. So, um, these, those are some of the reasons that I, and aside from how much I love doing the procedures and all the innovative techniques we have involved, I get to balance that out with just, you know, um, foundation of, of just medicine. Yeah, I can definitely understand that. Like it's kind of the, a similar decision tree I went where I, I really wanted something that had a large cerebral component, but also had a lot of hands-on and I liked the OR, but was not a fan of surgery. So it's kind of, you know, like that combination of things leading the right way. I do, it, it is interesting. I do like the, um, the ability of, uh, an interventional cardiologist to kind of choose their route. And like you said, you like to follow up with patients and create that connection, which I think is, is such a, a big thing, especially for what we're going to talk about today in preventive medicine. I think that's yep. huge. Right. Exactly. And it segues well, because I'm not only someone, you know, I, I don't like to think of myself as I'm, I'm treating the disease when they've hit that point where they're having a STEMI, being able to intervene. I actually love, you know, intervening on my patients, you know, preventatively and, you know, you know, the best um, intervention, the best way to save someone is to prevent from having the, you know, disease in the first place. Right. Definitely. 100%. So kind of leading into the the meat of our podcast here, we, we ask all of our guests, uh, what, is, what does preventive medicine mean to you? So as an interventional cardiologist, all the training you've had, we just kind of want to see what your scope is on how you view preventive medicine. It's a very deep question, yet broad, you know. Um, so, you know, when we traditionally think of prevention, you know, you think of, okay, we're going to attack a situation early in the game, right? I mean, cardiovascular disease is a perfect example, number one kill in the world, atherosclerosis, which, you know, takes time to develop, you know, with various risk factors. So, you know, trying to get into um, the process and intervene the process, disrupt the process early on is a way we can prevent, you know, the, um, the number one killer in the world. But it's more than just prevention. I think prevention is some way a misnomer, right? Because we can't always prevent disease, right? Um, I like to think of it as, okay, I want to try to work on 
preventing, preventative, but I also want to think about this maybe more an alteration, right? I want to change the course. I want to delay. You know, you can't always prevent a, uh, a disease. Everyone's going to die of something, right? But you can alter it. You can reduce the severity of it. And it becomes, you know, it com- becomes more of like a social awareness situation. It's a social construct of sorts, you know? Um, so I, I like to think of it broader terms and think, you know, pre- pre- prevention is not only trying to do X, Y, and Z early in the game to, you know, ultimately prevent a event or a disease from occurring, but even, you know, a slight change, a slight modification, a slight alteration to change the course, to change the direction of that curve, you know, because sometimes it's hard to, you have a patient come in, you're going to say, hey, I want you to do this, 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 and this for you to stop, you know, um, having your risk for developing heart disease, but sometimes it's not that simple. So, and patients get discouraged. I like to think of it as, look, we're going to make a change. We're going to alter the course. And that's also preventative. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with that, where prevention is not necessarily always just stopping someone from getting it all together, but um, more so maybe changing the risk factors and altering, as you mentioned, like reducing those risk factors and maybe altering the course of whatever that disease is. However, you also mentioned that heart disease and just like cardiovascular disease in general is the number one killer worldwide and it remains that way. And it seems those numbers are only going up. So we want to ask you, why do you think that we got to this point? And how do you think so many people have developed so many risk factors um, for cardiovascular disease and like, why is that the case? Yeah, no, very good question. So actually the, the per capita rate of death, we've actually slightly decreased it over the past 10, 15 years, right? So traditionally until like 1980, continually go on, go on, go on, go up. In 1980s, we're, you know, the overall death rate is different than the per capita, right? So the population's continuing to grow, right? But we're able to deflect the curve of the per capita death rate um, to some degree, okay? So the overall death rates are a little bit different from that because the population starts to grow, people start to live longer, and, you know, people are going to die from something, right? So even mm-hmm. if you see numbers that, oh, you know, the, the, the cardiovascular death rate is going up, but if you say the average age of the death has gone higher, then, you know, we've still done some good. So that being said, the the slight decline that we've seen from the 80s to now, the absolute number, as you say, is still super high, right? So some of the th- I mean, some of the things that we did good at in the in, in the 80s was, you know, treatment for like myocardial infarction, right? STEMI, as you know, ST elevation, myocardial infarction, mm-hmm. which is, you know, sudden occlusion of the heart artery from plaque buildup. We were able to alter the, the, the degree or the rate and the severity of that to some degree by, you know, statins, you know, understanding lifestyle, smoking. I mean, you remember back in the day, smoking was, was accepted. Cardiologists smoking in the cath lab, right? Nobody really knew this was causing damage. That's crazy. It's crazy. nuts. Yeah. I mean, literally, like, got it's another dimension, yeah. Smoking <laughs> cigs in the cath lab. I mean, it's insane. So, recognition of certain risk factors definitely altered our course a little bit. Um, you know, recognition of diet, you know, recognition of exercise and medications like statins, understanding cholesterol. So, that has deflected the curve a little bit in our favor. However, it still continues to be very high, right? So, even though we've come down, you know, all these meds we use, all these preventive strategies, the disease is still out there, right? And I think there's a lot of reasons why we, we, we still see this problem and we can still do better. Even though we know theoretically what can help reduce or prevent cardiovascular disease, you know, divvying out that information, educating people, the awareness is a challenge, right? 
It's, it's just because we know, you know, and maybe our, we can deliver that to some of our patients or our loved ones, whatnot, but there's a whole faction of folks out there who don't see doctors. They don't understand, you know, um, preventative health. They don't know what's a good diet is. They can't afford to live a healthy lifestyle. So part of it is, I think, is education and awareness. Um, and then we can do a lot better than that. A perfect example is, you know, um, smoking, right? I mean, we established a while ago smoking was, was really bad for you, whether it's cancer or whether it's heart disease, right? And, you know, obviously now, I mean, I remember the days you could smoke in airplanes, you could smoke in restaurants. Now it's, you know, you guys probably don't remember those days, right? I'm <laughs> Not I mean, at all. You were in an airplane and somebody <laughs> smoking a cig next to you. I mean, that was. I'll be crazy. so mad at that person. That legit, oh my right? God. Restaurant, same thing. I mean, so now we've, we've come forward, but there's smoking is huge. There's so many people who still smoke to the point where current trials, like their research trials looking at more advanced medications such as you know these medicines cholesterol lowering medicines for example repatha and praloid these are pcs inhibitors very you know advanced high duty um cholesterol lowering medications designed for people with heart attacks and in these trials people admitted in these trials were patients who had heart attacks or strokes already right so secondary prevention they've already had an event in these trials 20 percent of them still smoke cigarettes 20 percent people already had a heart attack yeah isn't that crazy I mean, so that alone, so, so it's a lot of his education, awareness and things like diet, exercise, smoking. I mean, it's one thing to know. It's the next thing to try and deliver that, you know? Yeah. And so kind of piggybacking off that, you know, I, one of the, one of the things we, we were discussing was just, you know, how can we as future physicians and you as physicians, just as, as a, as a group, can we be better? How can we be better? Does the system allow us to be better? I mean, all very, very good questions. I mean, I think our healthcare system has significant flaws and holes, as you know. I mean, you know, we've tried as a system, try to focus more towards prevention, right? I mean, we're, you know, it's evolving, right? I mean, um, you know, things have gone in our, in our healthcare system from, you know, based on, um, you know, a fee for service model and people, you know, it, it's heavy on specialties and specialties that make the most money and procedures is where things are at in the healthcare system. You know, the business aspect really capitalizes on this, but, you know, prevention is not much money on prevention, right? I mean, who's making money on prevention, right? No one. So the capitalistic American society, right? So uh, it's the concept is one thing, but implementing is another. So I think we need to really work harder to shift our resources and put more money into the preventative aspect of things, educate you know, getting more primary care out docs out there who are not inundated and overwhelmed to, you know, who could spend more than five minutes with the patient. If you spend five minutes with a patient who's smoking, you're not going to make an impact with them. Right. So the, if, if the, on the ground, how our system is working, it has to change. Right. Our primary care doctors are overwhelmed. They don't have time with their patients, even if they they know what they have to deliver. But in that five minutes, they got to okay review your labs, check your blood pressure, talk about A1C. Oh, I don't have time to talk about your smoking, talk about your weight, talk about your diet, give you education on how you can alter your course in the next 10 years. Those 45 minute appointments are old days, you know. So even though we're armed with more knowledge, we're not set up to, to implement that. And it's, it's unfortunate. So we, ha I think we have to work on this at a systems level. Yeah. We've talked about that in previous podcasts and, uh, we had Dr. John White on here, um, in our season one, who is the CMO of WebMD. And he's also worked at a lot of those like federal positions, like with the FDA and with the CD, was he with the CDC? I believe he was at the CDC. Yes, he was. So we talked a lot about some of those systemic things. And I've, we definitely noted that one of the underlying problems is where the money is. 
and that physicians and like anyone, they're going to chase where the money is. Cause at the end of the day, with capitalist society, as you've been mentioning. Right. And, um, it was actually funny. I was reading, I forgot exactly what book it was, but I think they figured out the current compensation schedule. Like they called all physicians or like a, a certain amount of physicians to come and discuss it. And then everyone else was too busy to come. And I think the only people who came were like orthopedic surgeons or something like that, an interventional specialty. And then they decided how the compensation structure was going to be built, which obviously is like, yeah. Yeah. So that's how, that's how it was structured. So obviously we need to restructure that. However, I think another part of the equation is that right now physicians are being trained and they want to go into fields that receive compensation. And if we flip that around, then we'll have more primary care physicians. We'll have more time and whatnot. And we can see how that goes. But the interesting thing there is that it's going to impact the physicians right now who are currently like doing interventional fields, right? Mm-hmm. So if the like the field of preventive medicine takes off as we want at this podcast, and as, as I think everyone wants, because at the end of the day, it'll be better for everyone. Um, what do you think the role will become of those like highly interventional fields, such as maybe yourself with interventional cardiology? Like, right. where do you think that piece of the puzzle I mean, fits we're in? We're always going to have a role, right? I mean, there are plenty of diseases out there that are independent of risk factors, right? Validator heart disease, perfect example. You know, I love treating Eric stenosis, TAVERS. These are degenerative diseases, right? Already we're seeing a decline in number of STEMIs and heart attacks that are out there. Part of the problem is that everybody wants to go into interventional fields, right? So it's sort of a supply demand mismatch, right? So for example, it's very hard to find an interventional position because everybody wants to be an interventionalist. General cardiology, which is, you know, if you think of the cascade of interventionalists, general cardiology, internists, you know, from the preventative cascade, you know, more people want to be the higher fields. Yeah, it's sexy. It's cool. We get to do stuff. And, you, you know, obviously you, you make a lot of money from it. But I think if you shift the tides and like if I told you, look, you could be an interventionalist, you get to do these procedures, you're going to make a lot of money. You're not going to sleep very well. You're going to be on all the <laughs> nights, but not, um, and this is going to be life. Or you can be a preventative doctor. You're going to make a lot of money as a preventative doctor. You're not going to take overnight call to come in for STEMIs. You're going to have a better lifestyle. You're going to spend more time with your patients and you're going to come home for dinner with your wife or husband, whatever it is. So I, I think it has, like you said, it has to change on a systemic level, but, you know, taking that first step, there's so much shifting that has to occur and the doc, docs have to be on board with this, right? If everybody's not on board, but from, you know, from the hospital level, from the, you know, the um, industry level, from the uh, professional societies level, doctor, everyone has to kind of be committed to that. It's, but we're so deep in it, you know, how is that going to change? And like you said, people for sure. practicing for 10, 15 years, are they going to say suddenly I'm going to, my salary, I want to drop my salary from X to Y because exactly. the preventative guys, you know, I'm only going to practice some guy, maybe see, I'm going to practice five, 10 years. What's my motivation for that? Right. So we're deep into it. So we have to, you know, it's, to some degree, it was going to take a tricky situation. Yeah, definitely. What do you think the follow-up is like as a follow-up question, I guess, what, what can we do right now? Obviously we can't wait and just hope for systemic change to happen tomorrow. Cause obviously that's not going to happen. It might not even happen by the time me and Jason start retiring. <laughs> so what, what can we do right now to kind of put more of the ball in terms of preventive medicine instead of, um, interventional fields? Um, it's a great question, man. <laughs> I, I really don't know the answer to that. I mean, you know, you think that there's been such a big push towards, I mean, there's in programs incentivized docs who say, for example, there's residence program to say, okay, we have a special primary care route, right? And they incentivize you for coming there. Try to draw people in to, you know, finan- perhaps financial commitment. I mean, to me, it's like, Hey, if you're going to go preventative uh, medicine field, guess what? Your loans, we're going to take care of loans. I mean, to me, that's a start. If you really That'd want be very to nice. it, look, it's all, it's about, look how, I mean, off topic, but look how inundated we are with loans and 
people who go to med school and they finally get out and they're in the system of corporate medicine and they're getting their ass beats and they're getting RVU things and, you know, they're trying to learn EMRs and they get burnt out real quick. You know, what you got to do me, you got to do is like, all right, if you want to do preventive medicine, we're going to forgive your loans or we're not going to charge you for medical school. Something like that. That's the only way this is going to happen. I don't know if you're aware, but we also have a lot of content going alongside each episode over on our Instagram page. So if you aren't already following us there, make sure to go do so at PreventPod. We have a lot of content relating to each episode, including waveforms, different quotes that you can share with your friends and help us spread the message of preventive medicine. And with that, let's get back to the show. So, um, kind of, uh, kind of transitioning just a little bit, um, you know, as a cardiologist, it, it's clear that diet and outcomes go hand in hand. Um, just on a personal note, I kind of was a, a roundabout way of getting into medical medical school for me. I actually, my undergrad degree was in nutrition science. Okay. Um, and I, I spent some time studying exercise science as well. And then last minute, I nice. decided to go to medical school. So uh, this is a particularly interesting topic for me is to see how different physicians view diet as, uh, as an intervention and as a baseline for health. So as a cardiologist, do you make any specific recommendations or do you specifically yourself follow a certain diet? Very good question. So first of all, I'm, you're probably more qualified to answer this with your training. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not claiming to be a nutritional expert. So for all the nutrition fanatics out there, just keep that as a disclaimer. Which is great because a lot of people will claim they are experts, even though I have nothing to do with it. So that's great. It's heated. It's like everybody's an expert. Oh yeah. You're there's no middle ground anymore. It's kind of like a political situation right now, right now. That's a nutritional situation. I'm sure we follow a lot of the same nutritional accounts and how it is, right? It's a shit show, you know, and social media has kind of made that a little bit more polarized and it's fortunate. And the bottom line is, look, the reality is there's not a lot of high quality nutritional data out there, right? I mean, there is data. Right. It's observational. It's mechanistic. There's very few randomized trials, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of this is which camp you're on, what you believe in, what your ideology is. So I always say, look, I keep an open mind. I'm not hardcore about one or the other. You know, I try to look at the big picture of things, you know, and as a cardiologist, unfortunately, it's sad. You think as a cardiologist, we have a lot of training in nutrition. We don't. I mean, I didn't learn a lick of nutrition. I had to self-learn, <laughs> self, you know, investigate, um, you know, aside from the basics, we don't learn that. And that's, to your point, that's something that I think needs to be focused more, both on primary care, uh, you know, it's in, in cardiology. I don't think we learn enough about diet and nutrition. It shouldn't just be, you have to do nutritional, you know, subspecialty. That being said, you know, um, I, I try to take a big picture look at it, right? So what, what are the common themes? No matter what camp you're on, there are a few things I think that most people agree on. Number one, um, processed foods, right? Processed foods are, you know, are bad for you, right? People generally agree you should stay away from stuff that's processed, um, trans fats, right? The unhealthy fats. I mean, even if you're a keto guy, I, I think most people are going to say trans fats, partially hydrogenated oils, those sorts of things you want to stay away from, right? The solid fats, you know, those, those yummy, tasty packaged treats. I mean, I think everyone agrees that's not the type of fat and that's not the type of stuff you want to eat. But it's amazing if you just ask patients specific things, they're eating these little, little, you know, things that you can make an impact on, right? Um, sugar, right? High sugar. I don't think there's any camp that advocates for high sugar, right? I don't think so, at least. So I mean, I think those are <laughs> not, some- yet, not yet, not yet, <laughs> not yet, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I like to start with the basics. There, I look at that. I'm like, all right. So tell me what your diet is. Are you eating X, Y, and Z? So if I can eliminate 
you know, someone from eating a Twinkie every day or someone from eliminating soda every day or packaged treats every day. I think that's mm-hmm. a good start. And I think that's a common rule. You know, each step you go further from that gets more complicated. I also mm-hmm. think most people think that, you know, eating more vegetables, eating more, you know, fruits, vegetables, legumes, plant-based stuff, yeah. the more of that you eat, the better it is, right? Um, and whether you're a fully plant-based person, you're a vegan person, even the carnivores, I don't think they're going to say that eating vegetables and plants are bad for you. Right. The Mediterranean and the AHA, they advocate their dietary recommendations advocates a lot based on the Mediterranean diet. Right. That's one of the few diets we actually have some randomized data on. Right. It's actually pretty solid data, too, on that. Yeah, it is. New England Journal article. I mean, it's very good data. And it shows that there was definitely a reduction in and just compound some of the observational data that in the Mediterranean diet is, you know, basically high intakes of fruits, vegetables, legumes, you know, nuts you know, olive oils and, you know, sparingly use of things like lean meats and um, animal-based proteins. It's not plant-based by any means, but, you know, you just reduce that. And then, of course, avoiding all those processed stuff, right? So that's kind of the route that I go. And, you know, you can't expect, and nutrition is hard. It's hard to tell patients, you know, to, you know, you want to eat this many calories, this many grams of this carb and this, that it's hard. You have to give them basic guidelines for the most part. Right. So that's what I try to do. And then what I try to do is just look, whatever you're doing in terms of how much sugar eating, carbs you're eating, calories you're eating, try to just make a change, right? Eat a little more plants, eat a little less calories, you know, make a little, move one of the levers a little bit, right? You're not going to, you know, the people who are too extreme, like you got to go full keto, you got to go full carnivore, you got to go only plant-based. I don't really agree with that because a lot of times I think it's unrealistic and we're trying to achieve forward momentum. Yep. And I, I totally agree with, you know, you pretty much hit the nail on the head on most of the stuff. I mean, um, the biggest thing, you know, in terms of the data seems to suggest is that outside of not smoking, being close to an ideal body weight seems to be the biggest uh, effect yeah. size of what can uh, prevent these um, uh, higher morbidities or mortality rates. Um, so, and there's a, a a big study that got published just a few years ago that basically showed like, Hey, every single diet in terms of its macronutrient breakdowns works for weight loss. If you're in a caloric deficit. So you said like, what kind of diet would the person sustain? How can we get them kind of, you know, let's get some more vegetables. Let's get some less processed things, kind of just slowly figuring out a way that can be sustainable for them. And like you said, the tricky part is the human side of it, right? Because I mean, obesity is a big nuanced topic that has big psychosocial factors as well. And, you know, no matter what's specialty where even family med doctors, you don't have that much time to talk about, you know, their, what their environment's like, what the, you know, what drives them to eat? Are they hungry? Or do they just like, you know, it's like all these questions that aren't necessarily specific to certain foods that they're eating, just more of what drives them as a person to eat and to eat certain things. So you're completely right on that, right? It's, it's, and people put a lot of emphasis on genetics, but a lot of genetics is like, comes down to what you said, appetite, what drives you to eat? You know, it's all about the caloric intake. In fact, you know, your previous question of what do I do? I do a lot of like, I like to do a little intermittent fasting, right? So I'm a fan of that. It works for me, right? I mean, not that I was ever super overweight, but, you know, keeping my, I, I tend to keep my weight well because my, with my lifestyle, with my hours, with my eating habits, it works well for me where I do 16 hours. I try to, you know, I try to keep my, I watch my carbohydrate intake. Um, you know, I'm obviously not plant-based if you follow my Instagram, you know, um, but it works for me. May not work for everybody. In fact, there was a recent trial that looked at comparing uh, intermittent fasting to just caloric monitoring calories. So three meals a day with caloric limitation versus intermittent fasting, guess what? There's no difference. 
Right. Uh, we put, we actually we, we actually a, posted we about this yeah. on our uh, Instagram account about it. Yeah, yeah. It, it was right. interesting, and there was some pushback um, from the intermittent fasting folks. And I think it was fair because their pushback kind of was like, well, if you have anyone eat ad libitum for eight hours, it's going to be hard to really see if that intervention works because you gain a lot of calories in eight hours. So, oh uh, yeah, <laughs> but I just oh, yeah. nothing magic to it, but it is a way to modulate your intake. And like you said, like some people love it. Like I'll do it from time to time too, especially if I know like, Hey, I'm going to go out to dinner with friends later. So I'll, you know, I'll have my smaller meals, a higher protein and fiber intake earlier in the day, and then save myself some calories for the evening. It's just, it's just one way to modulate calorie intake. It's gotta be patient specific. I mean, I recommend intermittent fasting to a lot of my patients and I've had a handful where it worked amazingly. Some patients didn't work at all. A couple patients, then I send them the Weight Watchers, they lost weight, you know? So there's there's no one, I mean, everyone's going in these camps to me. You got to look at everything as this is this is what we have in our arsenal, right? Let's figure out what's going to work for you. You know, limiting the calories, modulating what exactly you're eating, the macronutrients, all the stuff and how to fit an exercise. So you have to tailor it. This is why I don't like the these in, intense camps because everyone's different. Do you, do you refer your patients to like a nutritionist or a registered dietitian at all? I often do. I often offer it. A lot of times they say no, but you know, um, I'll have conversations with them. I'll try to give them basic guidelines if I'm not getting, um, anywhere. And like, you know, if I have someone who had an event, especially if they're overweight and even if they're stable and I give them some nutrition, basic nutritional, and I don't know how to inundate them, I give them basic nutritional guidelines and they come back and they're not getting anywhere. Then I'll pull the trigger and send them to a nutritionist. Early on in the hospital, if someone has someone I treat with a STEMI, someone who has an MI, um, and especially if they have concomitant diabetes and other things, I always give them a nutritional consult, right? Because information can never hurt. doesn't help everybody, but some people, everybody has a different angle of what works for them. Definitely. I think we're in a age of information overload where there's so many different um, sources of information, whether or not they're biased. And a lot of them, as we've been discussing, are biased towards one side. So whether we have like the carnivore people, the keto people, the like the intermittent fasting people, there's just so many different camps and all of them are saying that their technique is the best. And I think one of the things that we kind of underutilize in medicine that at least we don't talk about. I don't know if we utilize it as much, at least I haven't seen it in my personal experiences. Those registered dietitians who are like great yeah. resources, but for some reason we just don't use them as doctors. And instead we try to either tell patients ourselves do this based on our limited nutrition knowledge, other than Jason, who obviously has a degree in it, or, um, we kind of just let them to their own devices and then they go to social media and then they end up in some Twitter thread where we have a carnivore person saying that this is the best thing like since sliced bread. And you have a vegan person saying you're going to die if you go carnivore. And then yeah. who knows what there is to do. So I think we definitely need to uh, utilize registered yeah. dietitians more. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It's totally true. And like, you know, like that's the problem. They, you know, I had a patient the other day, super overweight guy. I put a stent in him. He comes in struggling to lose weight. And then he comes back to see me six months later. And he's like, yeah, I went on this hardcore keto you know, and like he just read something and like he kind of did it himself and he, for what it's worth, he lost 15 pounds, but he's, he, I think he ate probably a pound of butter every other day. Oh man. And I had his LDL at 66. He came back with an LDL at 140. <laughs> oh no. Uh, a month later, he had unstable angina. I put another stent in him. Oh God. You know, so, you know, <laughs> unguided and sees something and then just rolls with it, you know, and goes into this dark hole of social media and, so, you know, for, so for those of you guys listening out there, then you think that social media can actually have an impact and it can make things worse. Yeah, so exactly. whatever you read, 
that everyone isn't out there to necessarily help you. They're just putting out their idea. Everyone's so, an expert, don't you know? <laughs> exactly. As, as we already discussed. So definitely take everything with a massive grain of salt and don't just blindly follow anything that you're going to find on Twitter or like Instagram or wherever. Stuck with your physician, please. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the biggest thing that just drives me crazy about specific, specifically the keto folks. It's not necessarily that I hate keto. It's just that realistically right. it causes some cholesterol abnormalities that it otherwise does. patients wouldn't have. And even if you lose the weight, those things still matter. So, right. but, but the, the camp itself advertises like, Hey, that doesn't matter. Your cholesterol doesn't matter. Like, yeah. eh, but that's not true. If you have heart disease, it matters. And look, there's a way you can do like a keto thing and, you know, do a lot of fish. You can, there's ways to like work around it, but you can't just go blinded. This is why like, okay, this is, I want to try this. Let me talk to my doc. Let me figure yeah. out, maybe he's going to want to give me some guidelines. Maybe I'll get my cholesterol check in a couple of weeks. You know, there's ways to do it and not just jump into it. And that could be, this is my, my anecdote I gave you was a perfect example. Yeah. I just yeah. Eating, and then eating bacon all day. And now, now it's yeah. <laughs> not really, you know, the yeah. concept of keto and like, I'm not, you know, for all the ketos, I'm not a keto hater at all. You know, I do a version of that, you know, for some of my patients, but it's, you know, you gotta be careful. Exactly. And then jumping off the back of social media that we've been discussing, um, we know that you have a pretty large following in social media and you have a lot, nice presence on social media. And I know I've definitely enjoyed the stories where you post the cases. I definitely go through those and try to challenge myself for those. So yeah, number one, number one, thank you for that. You and uh, number two, the question here is um, kind of how did you get into the social media space and how has that impacted your ability to help people in your reach? Yeah, great question. I mean, you know, I never really planned to go big on social media. Um, you know, I like everybody else. I had a little Facebook page, I have an Instagram page and and I'm like, you know, scrolling and, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it got kind of boring and I'm like this, but you know, I, I saw the platform and like, this is a very cool platform, but you know, it, it doesn't have to just be cat videos and bikini shots. And you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's all great and all, but you know, there's, it just seemed to have more reach Then you know, I saw a couple of accounts that were like showing some educational stuff. So then I just kind of went on a whim. I started saying, look, let's see if we can garner some attention on it. And you know, it was, it was weird. Suddenly, like just everybody was, you know, who I was like, yeah, I'll probably have a thousand people out there who are going to want to, you know, sort of learn something about cardiology and medicine. And then, you know, it became this huge following and, you know, um, people love to learn. You know, I found that, you know, from, you know, it started off just geared towards sort of healthcare professionals like um, docs and residents and med students, nurses, you know, techs. And, and then it grew and people just have interest. And, you know, they like I, you realize that people you know, when you learn and you hear a lecture or you, you know, you work in the hospital, you pick up stuff, but it's different. The, the platform of social media in our era, you know, our low attention span, our swiping, our, <laughs> we want to see more, we want to see more. Like, yeah. So like people, you know, the Instagram stories, that's how I got really big is I would post all these stories and people want to digest stuff in 15 second nuggets and they enjoy it. You can make it a little bit fun and it's a different way of learning and it's interactive and it's coming from just, you know, I'm not, some world famous cardiologist publishing stuff. I'm just an educator, you know? So, and then people started interacting with me. I would get messages, people learn stuff and it was great, you know, and even patients started following me, patients learn stuff from it. So it suddenly became this valid resource for, you know, um, you know, different aspects of medicine and healthcare and cardiology and kind of roll with it. And, you know, it's great. And, and it just goes to show, and now you have a lot of accounts out there that are really, you know, trying to push out education. And it's, I think it's fantastic. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a, it's been a, an amazing resource for students too, because you can kind of, you know, I don't, I don't know if, if you kind of had a similar experience, but there's in the third and fourth years, it's hard sometimes to um, decide what you want to do because you get such a small window into what the life of whatever rotation you're doing is in, in a month or two weeks or whatever you have. So yeah. you can really right. see someone's day to day and that they really enjoy it and they're, what they actually are maximizing what they can do in their job. It definitely um, helps students find their way, I think a little bit no, as well. I mean, I get, I probably probably get at least one message a day from students who think about cardiology and they're so I'll follow your page. And I try to respond to everybody I possibly can because, you know, it really helps them get a little insight to your point. Exactly. You spend two weeks in a rotation and even then you're kind of shadowing. You don't really see it. So if I can give them a little snippet of, you know, okay, this is the kind of stuff I see. These are little images of my life and these kinds of things. And, you know, in the lifestyle stuff, people want to know, like, you know, not all docs are a bunch of nerds, you know, we're actually yeah. alive. We have interests. Hobbies we, and interests. Yeah. yeah <laughs> you know, we can live normally, you know, it's so I think people like that. They like to see a personality attached to a field. You don't see any of that when you're, when you're going and you, you have an idea of what you think you want to do, but you know, each step of the way you kind of learn a little bit more, but sometimes not enough. Yeah. So speaking of social media, and I, I can't help but notice you have a Peloton in the background there. Um, yeah. I am a, I'm a big Peloton uh, user myself. <laughs> um, so uh, do you think that uh, those sort of interactive things like the Peloton or using social media in some way where you can see other people on there, they see you, you can broadcast whatever you want from it, kind of that sort of thing. Um, how do you see that shaping how we can get more people exercising? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you for me, it was amazing. So I, I, you know, even before COVID and stuff, I would be so busy and I try to go to the gym and, you know, I'd go and try to work out and especially cardio. I hated it. You know, I would, you know, try to get myself to do it and whatnot. It didn't work for me. So COVID, we got this Peloton. I never really did Peloton before. And exactly what you said. First of all, it's nice to be able to go downstairs and be able to exercise, but having that component of, okay, this is a session. Someone's yelling at me, telling me to step it up. I loved it. And I see the leaderboard and, you know, exactly, yeah. a competitive cardiologist. So I'm like, shit, I got <laughs> exactly. so to be, it changed my life. I mean, literally I exercise way more than I did before. And it's that interactive component. And why do you think Peloton? I mean, I think through COVID, the guy's like a billionaire now because- yeah. The model is amazing. It made yeah. you know, some people love the exercise, right? They're, um, you know, fitness heads, but a lot of people aren't. But there's a big gray zone of people where if you have the interactive component, you have that someone yeah. like an instructor right in front of you where you don't have to go to a class and you know, do all this stuff and you and you have that interactive yeah. component, just like social media where people want to learn from the interactive standpoint. I think mm -hmm. it's huge. So for me, I mean, N of one, I love it. And, you know, I connected with my other docs. My wife loves it. So I, I think there's, this is, this is a game changing um, way of fitness. Yeah, I definitely, I think the, you know, I, one thing I've noticed in COVID as well. So uh, Raghav and I are both big um, into lifting weights as well. We both compete in powerlifting as well. So, nice. um, uh, so like we've no, I think I've noticed at least a, a big uptick in people buying their own like barbell, dumbbells, stuff for home. So I definitely see that some sort of, there's a space on social media or an interactive way of, of eliminating having to go somewhere, change your clothes. You're already tired from work, but if you just come home, it's there in your basement, there in your garage, you know, and you have some way of just logging on and seeing, like, okay, oh, these people are on there. Let, yeah. me, let me do this class that they're doing. And it just kind of gives you that, uh, that extra push that otherwise maybe you wouldn't have. And you know, you know how I know people are doing that? 
because my wife's been trying to find kettlebells and weights for six months. And they're months. all gone. She cannot find it. She called Walmart. They finally got one coming. She shows up. They're gone. Yeah. So oh, yeah. It's wiped out. <laughs> yeah, man. I, Definitely. Like, I had like, I was scrambling trying to find stuff. Cause I was like, well, if the gym shut out, I got to have something. So like right off the bat, when, when the shutdown started happening, I was like looking all over for stuff. It was, it's crazy how fast yeah. everything sold out. But you know, it's cool. It makes you think that, wow, people are, you know, it's the Peloton's in back order, weights in back order. People are actually, despite the pandemic, are trying to work out. They're trying to stay fit. And, you know, so maybe that's a sign of some good going on. Yeah, and I think on social media, we saw a lot of like COVID workouts and people hashtagging COVID workout, a yeah. whole bunch of home workout videos started popping up. So that was definitely fantastic. Yeah. And I think that shows that like the uh, duality of social media, where as we were talking about previously, it can be terrible for some people where you just fall into like eating butter all day, every day yeah. and spiking your LDL. And then also you can find those like Twitter threads of just arguing and people in the weeds for no reason that are not really helping anyone except for maybe their egos at some sense. <laughs> but then on the other end, we also have the huge positives to social media, such as Definitely. what you're doing with your social media and educating and putting that content out there. And that's kind of why we started this podcast at the end of the day, because a lot of what we're talking about in prevention, we've already discussed that it doesn't necessarily happen like in the patient room because there's no time and the model's not set up for that. So I think social media is probably going to be one of the biggest ways that we are able to get the message of prevention out there on a much larger scale outside of the one-on-one -on -one patient interaction. Yeah. And I think it'll be the most effective strategy that we have going forward. Do you, do you agree with that? hundred percent agree. I mean, look, social media is double-edged sword, right? I mean, look, I watched social dilemma. I'm sure you did. We all get it. You know, it's, it's, there's danger out there, but there's so much, I like to focus on the good right? There's so much, yeah. you know, there's so much positivity, there's so much reach, there's, you know, you can get to people and information, but obviously with that comes all the other stuff. But I, I'd like to think that, you know, if we do this right, um, and you know, the companies do it right, we can focus and make this way more good and beneficial than, you know, negatory. Yeah. I agree hundred percent. I think, you know, one of the, th one of the things I've realized in the past year is that I think the way we, the best way to combat all the bad stuff is out there is not to argue with them and fight with them. It's to keep putting out good content it out. and just right. overwhelm them out. with good content. Yeah. You're a hundred. I, I, that I totally agree with. You know what? We shouldn't even engage, you know, it's, it's exactly. our, it's our yeah. human nature. It's social media nature. You know, it's like, you like see it. You're like, oh, like I have to respond to this right now. Yeah. Instead of we tell people, instead of responding to some, like just put out a piece of positive content, you know? Yeah, I'm reading. Um, let me see exactly what that book is called. But Austin from Barbell Medicine uh, actually recommended it. It's I think it's called Calling Bullshit. Um, it's about like being able to call bullshit in uh, a data driven world where you have all these people that post statistics and like data supporting their viewpoint. But it's like bullshit stats. And it's like kind of cherry picked to show their specific stance on it. And most people out there are not able to tell the difference between what's good and bad information. They're not able to discern what we should actually be doing. So uh, that yeah. was a really good recommendation by Austin. I'm trying to read that right now. I just started yeah, it today. Yeah, me too. But that's the problem. People cherry pick. They're not, most lay people are not qualified to understand the data and understand the validity. And like, you know, there's stuff that's out there published, even preprint, you know, COVID's a perfect example. Like there's all this stuff out there. Somebody grabs it, social media account grabs it, media grabs it to take one line out of it. If you don't have an understanding of how, you know, the scientific method works, it's, it's, you know. Exactly. And you also touched on the engagement portion because, um, in the beginning part of that book, they talk about how the engagement is what in the social media world, that's what matters. Yep. So when someone puts out a story, it doesn't matter if it's hundred percent true. It doesn't matter. Like anything about it, if it gets clicks, it's going to get uh, higher viewed, higher, like promoted and shared and whatnot. So that's kind of how these things spread. So yep. as you're saying, we don't necessarily, we shouldn't be engaging with stuff that's not bullshit and we should be drowning it out as 
as what Jason's doing. Tra- we're, we're trying to do with this podcast, what you're trying to do. So I think we're definitely headed on the right path. We're with step in the right direction, right? Sure. Yeah. So, um, on a, on a kind of a similar note, but, um, just a slightly different, um, you know, I've, I've noticed in the last few weeks, um, you, you've used your social media platform to, uh, you know, make, um, positive political statements and try to go that route. Um, in a world that's so polarized with especially politics. And now that unfortunately science has been, you know, brought into this polarizing political situation. Um, how do you, you know, try to educate, um, you know, in, you know, we all have our political views and biases. How do you try to separate the science from the politics or when it's necessary, push them both at the same time? How do you make that decision? It's hard. You know, I never did politics on social media, but like we're in strange times now. And, you know, like I've said in my recent posts, it's kind of like, you know, once polit- you know, politics is going to be politics. People are going to have their views they've had for many years. I have friends who are, you know, um, different political views. That's fine. But to me, it's always like, you know, there's politics and then there's objectivity, science, which is for greater good. You know, once those streams crossed, you know, it's like old school Ghostbusters, you never cross the streams. You know? <laughs> uh, that happened. And I was just like, you know what? I, I couldn't not say something anymore. And of course, I got tons of heat. Anytime I put a political thing, I lose a couple hundred followers, you know, but it, and it's sad. But I, I'm, I'm not even trying to like push a particular political agenda. I'm just trying to point out how, you know, this particular, you know, this political situation should not interfere with something that's bigger and more important and should mm-hmm. stay objective, right? Like poor Fauci. I mean, Fauci's like, you know, he is, you yeah. know, the, he's, he's, he has bodyguards. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, like w- once you cross that, you're like, bro, this is, you know, enough is yeah. enough. Now it's like, we can't stay silent anymore. You can't do that. Yeah. You know? And it's clearly happening for yeah. games. It's unfortunate. And I a hundred percent agree because at a certain point, you know, it starts to attack the, true experts on the field that, you know, they're experts about, you know, it's like you're, when we're saying the infectious disease doctor, we're not going to trust them. We'll trust someone else because once it got uh, political, it became, you know, well, I'm going to go, I, everything this person is saying is whatever. So I'm going the other way. Right. And like, that's With not no basis, you know, and that's what it's just like, you know, if you had a valid argument and you gave me a, uh, something to hold back, but it was not like that. It was just sort of like, Oh, that's BS. And, you know, riling people up on it. Then it's like, you know, as a doc, and, and then you have to like, people are like, Oh, why are you talking politics? I'm like, I'm not talking about politics. I'm trying to, we're talking about science. Bro. Yeah, you know? exactly. And I think that also goes into the preventive sphere of things because we don't only just prevent like cardiovascular disease and stuff like that, but you can also prevent infectious diseases. Yeah. So as far as like a lot of what's happening right now is getting in the way of preventing infectious disease spread. Obviously COVID has been huge and like continues to spread and it's even picking up steam right now. So, um, have you dealt with someone who's kind of had that anti science view and how do you kind of overcome that um on real life or in social media so let's say it, I guess in patients that you patients that you have i have i mean you know i i tr- i mean there's some patients i know who you know i can talk to about things and then there's some patients who have altering views i try not to engage them on it but although i've seen them you know i've seen patients mention things or say things and whatnot i i try not to be too you know you know get too engaged in it i'll just focus on, okay, you know, but just remember, you know, masks, talk about the masks, talk about the distancing, keep it, you know, keep it what's important. You know, I'm not trying to change people's views or notions, but I'm just trying to say, look, that's fine. But now I'll just tell you from the medical perspective, you know, you, you should, 
do this and you should do this and leave it at that, you know? And sometimes that's enough, you know, especially ones I have relationships, they trust me. It doesn't matter what views they are. Um, so, but you, it's out there and I see it probably on a daily basis and you got to be careful how you tread it, you know, you, you, um, and you know, but, but you have to, I feel like, you know, throwing in a little bit, you know, if I throw in a little bit of knowledge like that, you know, and someone who respects me, maybe I'm able to change even one person's view or maybe, that person will start not saying masks don't work or saying COVID's a hoax or whatever it is, you know, even a little bit goes a long way. Yeah. So in kind of leading off the, you know, COVID has impacted all of our lives so much in the last year. Um, I think, you know, one of the things we actually talked about uh, a couple of days ago was this idea of like, you know, we're, we're not even seeing yet the ramifications of people are eating worse. People are exercising less. People are at home more. Mental health is at an all time high in terms of, you know, um, problems. So what, as a, someone who's already seeing a lot of heart disease, do you think we're going to, we're in for a, a, an uptick of heart disease and preventable diseases just based on being uh, quarantined for so long? Great patient. I mean, it's a great question and, um, time will tell, but the, the recipe is there, right? As you said, uh, so many of my patients, they've gained weight. So many of my patients have been extra stressed. And we know that, look, you know, smoking, lipids, psychosocial factors, those are the top three contributors of these Psychosocial factors is big. Stress and, you know, sleep and just how people's, um, you know, um, social situations are, that matters, you know? And so I do believe this quarantining, the people who took it hard, you know, the people who are less active, I think that's going to make an impact. Mental health is huge. My wife's a psychiatrist. She's never been busier. She's doing complete telehealth, but like people are, you know, super anxious. People are super stressed. Um, so all these things are, are, are building, you know, so, um, the downstream effects could be very real. Um, you know, we've seen, you know, in our rebound phase in August, I think we had the highest number of, I mean, maybe it's chance, maybe not in August, we had the highest number of STEMIs in a single month than we've had in years. Uh, yeah. I mean, um, so I do believe, um, all these factors, um, will have, maybe it's going to be a small impact. And also remember a lot of these patients aren't seeing their docs, right? I mean, doctors, some doctors are still doing phone visits, still not the same. Some people are not even going to the doc. So all those things are going to add up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know you, I know you posted a while back about uh, an increase in patients who are, they're having chest pain and they don't go to the hospital because they're afraid to go to the hospital to be exposed to COVID. Yeah. You know, this was, nobody ever thought about this portion of it, but back in like, you know, April, for example, um, there was a lot of folks, and this was actually looked at um, several centers between Massachusetts, and New York. They looked at, uh, at their numbers and they found that, you know, cardiac arrests at home had got significantly higher. People who were coming in for actually heart attacks was going down. So people were deferring care. We had several late presentations um, who came in with mechanical complications. So when someone comes in with a heart attack or a STEMI, you know, you get them in quick, you try to open the artery fix the heart muscle, if they come very late, meaning a lot of the damage is already done, then they can have something like called the mechanical complication where, you know, they rupture a hole in the heart, they rupture one of the valves. And this is usually very high fatality rate. So we saw several of those scenarios because of deferred care. And I know several of my colleagues in New York saw that. And then there became this shift in focus from the cardiovascular societies to tell people, look, you know, and I even did a YouTube video on this. I'm like, look, you are, you know, if you're, you're sick, you got to come to the hospital. COVID is COVID. But if you're having a heart attack, you're rupturing your appendix, you know, you're um, severely short of breath, something's going on, you, you got to come in. People will protect you. They'll take care of you. 
but um, don't defer your care because you can have catastrophic things. So, um, you know, I, I think now things are better, but when places were, when the scare was there and the fear was there, you know, we didn't really tell people, we tell people, okay, stay home and quarantine, but no one said, oh, by the way, but if you're, you're, you know, feeling like crap, you should still come to the hospital and people were too scared. So hopefully that's on the, the way to improvement. And I think it is, um, but we definitely saw that. But even still, I still have I have a guy I'm trying to get him to do his valve, his taver. He's deathly afraid of of COVID still. And I'm like, bro, it's things are a lot better now. You're gonna drop dead at home. Yeah. But he's still too scared. So it's still yeah. Yeah, so definitely a little. Oh, go, go ahead, ahead sorry, Jason. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask slightly off the topic of uh, preventive medicine. Now that we have you here, <laughs> kind of, what are you seeing in terms of like heart complications from COVID? Because I know there's a lot of like cases of uh, we have like post-viral myocarditis. I guess so. Yeah. What are you seeing? Yeah, honestly, I mean, and if you look at a lot of centers, we're there is some po- there's COVID myocarditis out there. It was not as much as people thought there was going to be. Um, so definitely is some out there. People who had really, really sick COVID infections do tend to get a um, little troponin leak or, you know, injury, cardiac injury um, as a part of their sort of sepsis and their, you know, overall systemic illness. Um, and we are seeing some, you know, there's some papers out there, but a little bit controversial about people who've recovered from COVID and they did these MRI studies on their heart and they found, oh, wow, all these people are having inflammation um, in their heart. And the media picked it up. They're like, wow, COVID's causing healthy athletes who got COVID to have long-term heart damage. But, you know, again, if you don't know how to look at the trials, you, you, you're you going to get misconstrued from this. And this was like a hugely downloaded study. It was a preprint. But, you know, and then later on, you know, another paper came out saying that, look, these findings they found on MRI in these post-COVID people, they didn't compare it to any controls. And we found similar findings in healthy athletes, you know. So there is this you know, this kind of fear, a um, little bit of an inadvertent fear mongering going on. And a lot of it is just from folks, you know, honestly, a lot of folks are just trying to publish so much stuff on COVID has become the wild, wild west, you know. So there's, you've seen a lot of stuff in the media and in the news about, oh, all these bad things about heart. I don't think it's as bad as folks think. Um, certainly the people with very, very severe COVID infections, um, there is a faction of them who are having some significant, you know, um, residual myocardial illness and some myocarditis. But it's not as rampant, I think, as yeah. people suspect. Yeah, and I know, like it's like you said, like because everyone's trying to publish right now, it's almost like we have to be careful. As you know, it's, we're already having a hard time the public trusting us. We have to be very careful about like not publishing junk science and not furthering it because it can be. You know, it's so easy to get caught up in that. Like you and know, it's going to dig science into a yeah. hole even more than they are. Right? You know, yeah. And it's like, we know like any sort of virus, so, you know, adenovirus can cause myocarditis too. So it's, you know, it's like, right. Is this like, is this a specific thing? Everybody with adenovirus, like, how do we know that's not normal for that? hundred percent correct. So it's, it's, this has become a little bit of a phenomenon. You know, there's so many, I mean, the number of publications and preprints and this preprint shit has gone crazy. You know, not even published in peer reviewed journals, people upload to a preprint server, somebody gets a hand of it, media gets a hand of it, and then it suddenly becomes gospel. And it's, it's, it's. It's crazy. Exactly. And that's what we talked about with that, like that first click thing where everyone doesn't care about, they just want the headline. They want the click because that gets the revenue. That's it. No one cares about where the revenue comes. And then it's running running all day in our 20. And lay people don't know that the study that this article quoted is in a peer reviewed journal or exactly, you know, pre print upload server. Nobody knows that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just to tie things together, we could run on and on and on about this because there's just so much to talk about with COVID, misinformation and whatnot. Oh, but man, um, we could talk about it. <laughs> exactly. We, we want to respect your time. And uh, the 
as a final question, we always ask all of our guests, um, kind of as like a practical takeaway, obviously not medical advice for anyone listening to this, but as a practical takeaway, let's say you're at a coffee shop and you're waiting for your coffee and it's like two or three minutes until your name is called and someone comes up to you and it's like, hey, Dr. Hader, you're, you're a cardiologist, right? How do I get healthy? What do you tell them in that two minutes? Oh boy, two minutes. Um, well, I would say, I mean, so the basics, right? So everybody's, everybody has their own thing. I like to think it's different levers, right? You can, whatever levers you can adjust to change how you are, how you live can help. So, you know, the AHA, I like, they, they put out this Life Simple 7. I don't know if you heard of that. The AHA talks about Life Simple 7. These are the seven things to focus on metrics, both lifestyle and other factors that you can do. And if you can tweak some of those knobs, you're going to move towards uh, potentially a, a healthier future. And that's blood pressure, right? Do you know what your blood pressure is? When's the last time you got your blood pressure checked? I would tell them, right? If you don't know, find out what your blood pressure is, know what your goals are. Number two, have you ever had your cholesterol checked? If you haven't had your cholesterol checked, get it checked. If you know what it is, what's the number? Is there a way we can work on that number? Number three, how much do you exercise, right? Are you exercising enough? The AHA says, you know, the minimum recommended exercise is two and a half hours per week of moderate exercise, right? So enough that you're getting shorter breath, but you can still talk. Or, you know, um, an hour and a half of more intense, hour, hour and a half of very intense exercise, right? So are you meeting those bare minimum metrics? And even if it's moderate walking, right? That's, you know, I think I like to focus people, exercise can just mean getting out and walking 20 minutes a day, all right? And a lot of people aren't able to do that. Um, diet, right? What is your diet? Can you make any changes in your diet? We talked a little bit about that before, right? Can you tweak that knob a little bit? Um, what's your weight? Do you know your ideal weight? You know, if you don't know your ideal weight, educate yourself. And can you make small changes to go towards that? And finally, the seventh one is smoking. Do you smoke? If you smoke, you should probably stop smoking. So I, I looked it up. I'm checking you on this. Are you you good or- <laughs> yeah, I just Googled. It's a benefit it. having a second screen right here. Okay. Yeah. Just, just for the sake of completion, I'm not like bragging on you or anything, but what there's also blood sugar on there and then also uh, to lose okay. weight. Oh, wait. I thought I said weight. Sugar he I missed. Yeah, he said weight. He said weight. Said okay, weight. okay, okay. I missed the blood sugar. You're right. Sugar. Right? Yeah, yeah. There we go. Good fact check. There we go. I'm not going to lie. That was probably, <laughs> that's probably the most, uh, uh, I would say, comprehensive, comprehensive yeah, advice we've I received. Agree. So you're, right now, you're the, you just set the bar for... So that's like, going to be a waveform right there. I don't know if you've seen any of our posts. We have like a clip where it's like uh-huh. one to one-ish minute of a content piece right there. That's that's it right there. All right. But I, I stole it from AHA, so don't give me all credit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that's that's all we have for today's podcast. We want to thank you. We really want to thank you for your time. I know you're a super busy guy, so yeah, really, no, really appreciate I, it. I love doing this stuff. Thanks for having me. Hopefully, I gave a little bit of insight. Um, um, and you know, uh, I'm sure we could have talked probably for another hour without, oh, without definitely yeah, easily. So um, maybe we'll have to do it again sometime. Oh, 100%, all right, yeah, for sure. We'll hold you to that. Fun right, <laughs> deal. All right, all right thank you so care. much for joining bye, bye. us. Absolutely, yep. guys. Stay safe out there. All right, you too. Yep. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.